and thank you for joining us, our fellows lovers of love, on this excursion through the stream of consciousness, down the river of tranquility, and on towards the lake of love. Hey, I got it right for once. What do you know? Meanings of love must be a... It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good show. It just means I can say those four lines without screwing it up for a change. That's all it actually well, means. Well, it means you're not fumbling over your words tonight. Well, it means my tongue is working. This yes, is true. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. It means the tongue is working today, which, hey, some days you take what you can get, right? <laughs> so we want to start today off, we're talking about the meanings of love and all the various ways that we love people, who we love, why we love, not just people, things. You know, love is a all-encompassing terminology. And so uh, there's a quote from a poet. It's actually not starting with a poem. It's a quote from a poet. And the reason I chose a quote from a poet is because poets have, for as long as they were recorded language, been trying to express love. Those are the one group of people, you know, who almost universally struggle with that concept. It, you can actually hear that over the over the thing. Um, that one group of people has struggled with the concept of how to express, how to show, how, how to express that in words, that feeling in words. And yet, in so many ways... They've done it in so many ways, some of them quite eloquently, but yet they all fall short. So it's, people's minds aren't often changed quickly or easily, but people's hearts can be changed in an instant. And therein lies the power of poetry to change the world. Now she's talking about poetry, but you can't change someone's heart unless you genuinely love them. Or, as a poet, generally loves humanity. And it's that love of humanity that can change the world. You know, and if there's ever a time when we need a little bit, a little bit of love of humanity, a love of your fellow human being, regardless of whether you like them or not, you can still love them. You know, there was a, uh, a tragic, it's not an accident because a young man drove drunk, so it's not a tragic event where a football player up-and-coming, you know, young football player, drove drunk, and that killed a woman in another car. And so he's going to have to pay the price for that, the legal price for that. But his quarterback said, I'm still going to love him. Says the whole world hates him right now, I get it. But I'm still going to love him. Doesn't mean you don't understand what he did. But he's still a human being. He's still somebody you care about. And you still love them. And you walk with them as they pay for their choices. It's going to be a high price. And, you know, it should be. But it doesn't mean the people who love you should stop loving you. You know? It's a difficult thing. And so we're on to our first question. We're going to do a, we're doing a little out of order tonight, but for reasons. Did you want to? Uh, huh? 
Okay. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, well, we usually do the... That's true. I'm sorry. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> We're breaking... I'm, I'm just sitting here. <laughs> Why do my parents forget I'm adopted? Well, that's actually an easy one. They love you. They don't actually forget. It just doesn't matter to them. It's not that they forget. They know you're adopted, but it's not relevant. It's actually a beautiful gift. You know, they know that you're adopted. You know that you're adopted. But why are you going to make it a thing? I can kind of get it from the adopted person's perspective. Right? You're searching. You go through that period, right, where you search for some identity. You know, as a... As a young person, teenager, growing into adulthood, you face that anyway. You know, trying to figure out your own identity separate from your family. And you try to work through that anyway. And if you're an adopted child, that, that's just an extra burden to bury because you don't have the family roots to hold you. Those roots are, they seem artificial from the surface. If you just look at it superficially, they seem artificial. You know, how can someone who's not related to me unconditionally love me? But they do. Yeah. And so that's a hard thing to struggle with. I, I get it. You know, but at the same time, you know, love is a wonderful thing. It's the cement that bonds families, people, cultures, societies. You know, and it's not just the love of your spouse or the love of your children. I mean, those are two vastly different loves. The love for your parents. Three vastly different types of love, but we use one word. We love our football teams. We love our favorite food. We love to go for a drive. You know, it's... We love our country. We love our town. We love our communities. These are all different. Except they have an emotional connection with us. That's the difference. It's that emotional connection. You know, the difference between like and love is an emotional connection. You know, you can like a movie. That's fine. But the movies you love have an emotional connection to you. They reach you on some deeper level. The food you love reaches you on a deeper level. I don't have that problem. But, you know, I mean, people who do love food, it reaches them on an emotional level. Yes. I had some beef stew last night. It was lovely. <laughs> See? It... So there's these things that we talk about love and we just don't understand it very well. And so when you ask, why do your parents forget? Why do your parents, one, reread your question. Why did my parents forget I'm adopted? You called them your parents. You love them too. You're just struggling right now with your identity and that's a, it's understandable. It's just, you know, questioning the love they have for you 
it's, you know, I get it. I understand why, but it's not a worry. Them forgetting you're adopted, it's not forgetting you're adopted. They just unconditionally love you. That's all it is. And it's a beautiful thing. We need more of it. Treasure it. Give them a hug. I would. Give them a hug for me. How's that? <laughs> I do. I to give them a hug for me. That's, that's my suggestion from that one. Alright, so. Uh-oh, let me remove that. Okay, so. There's an interesting thing in uh, going on these days. Talk about playgrounds and childhood safety, and we all want to raise our childhood safe. But in Germany, there's an interesting push for riskier playgrounds, and the people who are pushing it are the odd is the odd group. The idea is odd. Well, the idea is not necessary. It's just from who it's coming. There's lots of people who have pushed for allowing playgrounds to remain not necessarily deliberately risky, but, you know, you have to be able to learn to make judgments, and life is inherently risky, and, you know, playgrounds are part of that learning. Now, you don't want them to be unsafe, but you want them to have an element of You want them to be able to fall off something because it teaches them to be careful. And the, what is odd here, and this is in Germany, it's insurance companies are asking for these playgrounds to become riskier. Because what they're finding out is later on in life, these people don't know how to make risk judgments. They never learned it when they were five and seven. And so at 17 and 19, they have no freaking clue what they're doing. And so they're not learning the lessons young that they used to learn. And so it's costing a whole crap load of money. So the lessons they can learn on a playground <laughs> with a scraped knee or a broken arm, they're, they're now learning with brain damage because they're riding a scooter, you know, without any fear of what happens when you fall. And so it's, the insurance company says, you're costing us money. <laughs> you're... you're <laughs> your reliance on safety is actually creating bigger dangers down the road and it's costing us money. Now, it took me a while to warm up to this article, to this idea. Well, because it's counterintuitive. Yes, it is. And especially, now, okay, let me put it, it's counterintuitive for the generic average woman. For the generic average man, we get it. Because we raised boys, and you, the only way this sucker's going to learn is to smash their head into the wall, so you let them smash their head into the wall. That hurt, didn't it? <laughs> you know, kind of theoretically. You just, you got to, you know, because the way boys are, but girls are different. Girls have to be a little bit more protected for obvious reasons. They're more vulnerable to predators than men are, and so we protect them. And so you carry that with you when you're raising your children. It, it's from a anthropological I think that's the word I'm looking for yeah perspective it makes sense but you know that's why you need the balance <laughs> you know we'll go too crazy we'll let them do too much 
And so you, you need the, you know, the more protective woman to pull us back. But also at the same time, we need the, you know, the more adventurous man to say, no, let them go. Let them, but they can hurt themselves. They might. <laughs> but they can't run around in a bubble. They've got to learn lessons. You know, life is dangerous. It's, you know, they're relatively supervised. It'll be fine. Yeah. Especially nowadays, it's a, we have hospitals and and, oh, you know, well, that's a comforting thought. <laughs> well, back in the days, you know, a broken toe could actually get infected and cost you your life. That's not really a danger now. You know, a small cut, a broken toe, these kind of things could actually cost you your life. Something relatively small could get infected and cost you your life. But that's not really a problem right now. You know, a broken arm, it's six weeks of inconvenience. You don't want them to have the pain, but it's not a life-shattering event anymore. It's not a thing. You know, I broke my arm at three or four, whatever it was. Yeah, learned that tricycles are not stable vehicles. That's what I learned. <laughs> I learned that at three. <laughs> don't go down a steep driveway and try to make the sharp turn onto the stand on the sidewalk because what's going to happen is you're going to fall the fuck over <laughs> that's you know I remember that still 40 some odd years later remember the lesson so I'm just saying what do you think you're see this is the one you need the camera on you because she's looking at there like I'm crazy y'all just need to understand the she's looking at me like I'm crazy I am not yes you are no I'm smiling <laughs> see but, smiling no you can see smiling so no, yeah but it's one of those you're a crazy old coot smile it's one of those <laughs> <laughs> But I'm, but I'm also correct. <coughs> I may be a crazy old coot, but I'm also correct on this. All right. Let me see. So what do we got next? Is a two-parent income worth it? God, that's so subjective. Well, it also kind of depends on career goals and how much your income you're making. And the article, you talked about, you know, women staying home. But I, I, it doesn't really matter which... From my perspective, the, the, the article is a little overly traditional. Oh, really? Okay. But the concept is one person, whether it's two incomes, whether who's out earning the majority income, you know, who's earning the big income, who's earning the thing, it doesn't. It's not really relevant. You know, if stay-at-home parent, <laughs> you know, stay-at-home father is just as capable as a stay-at-home mother. You know, it'll look different, but. We've had a few of those here in this neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I see them out with a parade of kids. It's cute. Well, and it depends on, you know, the the life goals of each person, how much money the other person can theoretically make. I mean, if you're just working to pay off, just to pay the, the daycare bills, it may not be worth it. Unless you're building a long-term career. 
then you know it's maybe you're sacrificing current things for a future high-powered career but if that's not what you want if what you want to do is raise your kids because that's what's going to give you rewards that's what's going to emotionally reward you that's what's going to make you love your family and yourself and your community and that's what you do of course the problem is in places like where we live it's simply expensive how do you afford a $500,000 house modest what, sm three small bedrooms one bath house is about $500,000 in our neighborhood not even a big house small little house on a small little lot how are you supposed to afford that on a one income unless that person's a doctor or lawyer or government consultant you know I mean I suppose a plumber or a truck driver and whatnot they can afford it because they can make decent money 100,000 K a year but they have to work their butts off to do it and they're never home. And they're never home. And the yeah, at that thing. It's a... We've kind of gone down a primrose path that wasn't real. This whole two-parent, two-income families. All it really did was make life more expensive. It didn't really increase in, in our family lives any better. Is our communities any better? Is our culture any better? I don't know. I suspect many of us will say no. I mean, yes, there's aspects of our culture and our communities and whatnot that have improved, but my guess is they would have improved anyway. Are you saying it's not an improvement to have a choice? No, no the choice is great. The If we have gone that you know the most capable for whichever role does that role it's not really relevant I'm not saying you shouldn't have had women in the workplace that's you know everybody should have their choice but I'm also saying is we've essentially taken away that choice for many families we never said you know what it should be okay for men to stay at home we shouldn't judge that we never really said that Women haven't accepted that. Women still judge men by how much the money they make. It's understandable. It's one of those chicken or the egg things. You know, in order to get to one, women have to start making enough, have enough confidence that they can make enough money to support a family before they can change their perspective on how much on that, right? It's one of those things. Uh that you know the turning point has to already happened gotcha. <laughs> before they can feel comfortable where you can you know culturally speaking not an individually thing and a cultural thing you know we're talking mass we're not talking individual people here we're talking the masses you know where you wash away the individuality of everybody and you put it all into one big pile and make try to make some sense of it it's these things fail whenever you try to apply it to any individual person. Because you've thrown everybody into a big pile and trying to make sense of it rather than taking an individual out. Because well, every individual is different. 
But you take all those differences and throw them into a pile, and you've got this whole big, massive blob of thing, and you're trying to make some cultural sense of it. It's never going to be completely accurate. You know, that's how stereotypes happen. And, you know, there is some use to stereotypes, as long as you re- realize what their use is and what it isn't, that you can't apply it to an individual. It's for mass analysis only and it has to be valid you know relatively valid it can't be based upon preconceived notions that's so I'm running that risk here I'm just pointing out that I always run that that anytime you have these conversations about mass attitudes of gender attitudes or culture attitudes you run the risk of being wrong <laughs> I can't. you you know you could be a solid in history and analysis and what as you want but it doesn't mean you're right it just means you're made an educated guess and you know i've been as wrong as much as i've been right in my life <laughs> if not more <laughs> I get better as I get older, I suppose. Now, there was this one. Marriage advice from John Adams. I love this article. Okay. So, what was it? Well, now, the thing is, um, I thought he was single. He was single for a long time. He, it, it took a long time for him to, his, for his wife to agree to marry So, his advice still rings true. Be slow to blame, but sensitive to the needs of your spouse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Liberally exercise cheerfulness in a marriage. Well, that we do that here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't expect perfection. Forgive early and often. <coughs> Thank goodness we do that. I would never survive. <laughs> well, <laughs> either would I. Well, I think a lot of the point is his points here were, you know, it's like don't blame them if they interrupt you while you're writing because he was a big writer and his wife comes in and wants something. And don't get mad because she wants something and interrupts your train of thought. It's not her fault. You know, it just is one of those things. You accept it as an interruption. You know, you don't... But these are actually, a lot of these aren't just good rules for your marriage. They're good rules for life. They're good rules to keep yourself happy. It's managing your own reactions to things, you know. People aren't responsible to how to you react. People aren't responsible to how you react to an interruption. You know, the way you react to an interruption is your responsibility, not theirs. You know, the way you react to a bad day is their resp- is your responsibility, not theirs. I almost said that backwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your 
how you react is ultimately your responsibility. And when you accept that responsibility and you make positive affirmations to accept that responsibility, your partner notices, even if they don't notice. And they will respond in kind. I notice. I'm sure I miss half of it. Yeah, but you know, even if you don't notice the thing, the a particular thing, you notice the overall feeling. Yeah. The overall feeling is there. Yeah, you, know, you may not notice the things, but you notice the feelings. You notice the emotion attached to them. Well, you're usually very. I would. You. You. I would say you're. You're rarely upset. You're usually very calm. I get a calm response. I can always expect a calm response now. Now my my uh, fears and insecurities sometimes come into play, but <laughs> that's a different thing. <laughs> we all have fears and insecurities, but that's actually part of it. You know, everybody has their own fears and insecurities, including me. You're sitting here giving me all kind of praises, but the only reason you give these praises is because you accept my foibles, my my quirks. Yeah, I'm a quirky. I'm a quirky person. I'm not an easy human being to live with. You think I am, but it's because we give each other the freedom to be those quirky people we are, and so it makes life easy that way. Well, you have taught me. I prayed for someone who was kind. That's all I cared about—just somebody who was kind for ten years. And and I thought I knew what kind was, but you taught me a whole new level. Well, I, I, I don't know. I should just accept these things. When someone says that, I should just accept it. Well, you know, maybe I should talk to my therapist about why I have a the need to downplay that kind of a thing. You know, rose-colored well, glasses. Could, you can try. Well, I can try. Yeah, I'm just saying, why do I feel the instinct to, man, we should, are really going to have to sit here and have a marriage therapy session on your, <laughs> your friend, All your friends notice it, too. I'm not the only one. Well, they notice I'm, I'm open. What they notice is that I'm open. And open and honest. And that's attractive to people who like that kind of thing. You know, it's welcoming. People feel comfortable when you're open and honest. But I'm only open and honest. It's a self-preservation thing. My anxiety disorder. Well, you could be open and honest and an asshole, but you're not. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> it could go the other way. You don't. You know, there is brutal honesty and there is honesty with kindness, and you know, you can be both. You know, you can be blunt and kind at the same time. Yes, you erased it to an art form. Yeah, you don't have to be blunt and brutal. You can be blunt and kind. It's not impossible. It's not always easy, but so. Kindness is its own reward. It is. It's its own reward. It is, yes. Yeah. So, I don't know. We are at our halftime, Lubby. 
Okay, I'll be right back. All right, we are going to, to give Lubby her quick break, and we'll be right back. And we are back. I want to thank you all for joining us. You want to send a Dear Lubby letter or send us a question, you can do that at love at late night love us. You can find me uh, at Jazzrack on Twitter. You can send us a message on Facebook or your various other social media platforms. But on Facebook, it's the Late Night Love. Yes, that's the only one because there was a... Even though there's no page called Late Night Love, it couldn't give me one because there used to be a page called Late Night Love. So, oh, I actually look. It's not like there's another one. It's just it, there used to be another one, and I don't know. It, we, you know, you want to sign up? Hey, can you give it to me whenever it comes available? No, they will never do that. Yeah, suckers, you just have to keep trying or something. I don't know. And you can find us on all your favorite podcast networks. Just search Late Night Love and we should be there. Or you can always find us on our website. It's probably the best way to see all of the stuff. We have all of our links, show links, all nice and organized by show there. All the links to the articles. It's the easiest way to do it. Just go to latenightlove.us and you can find us there. There is a contact form you can use as well. So there's many ways to talk to us. We need to start a Reddit thread, though. A Reddit thing. Ooh. Yeah. Well, Miss Chatty over there needs to start a Reddit thing. All right. I don't do Reddit. I've seen it. Well, did you need to start? That's the point. Oh. (laughs) It's just chatting with people. You do it all the time. It's just text chatting the way you do all the time anyway. Sweet. All right. So we're going to get these questions up. We got a, we got a, some uh, interesting more interesting. Eh, interesting questions today. Yes, I can. Lord. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I apologize for that one. But man. Trying to get my mouth to work. Okay. On to the first one. Yep. My neighbor keeps on watching me through her through her window. Miss Kravitz. Every time I look at her, she hides behind the curtains. Maybe she's just a nosy. I don't know. Would it bother you if it happened to you? And what would you do? It's like that bewitched the from Bewitched, the Miss Kravitz. What was her name? Was that Miss Kravitz across the street? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just always peeking through the windows. Yeah, I don't know. It kind of depends. I mean, these things. Well, it you could, could be go creepy. over and introduce yourself. I mean, one Take the fact. Take some cookies. One the fact that it's a woman is less creepy than it than it's a man for some reason. Some reason. And I don't know why it shouldn't be, but it is. You know, she's probably just being nosy. Has nothing else to do. And just kind of looking, and you happen to be the person who lives across the street. <laughs> If I were to guess, you know, if you really want to do it, just wave at her every time. 
<laughs> very excited wave. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, just be a very excited wave, and you'll embarrass her to stop. That would be my actual. If, should try that. I'd take her some cookies. Hey, how you doing? You look lonely over here. Well, see, I, I, I wouldn't do that because then you might end up, you know, she might be lonely and you, just, you know, you want to be kind and everything, but she also might be crazy. And so you want to be careful. <laughs> yeah, it could be a hoarder or something. You never know. And, <coughs> and you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, everybody, we talk about wanting to love our community and love our fellow human beings and love humanity. And so, you know, you want to do want to approach it with love, but at the same time, you need to be cautious, which is why it's like, you know, try the big white thing and see what happens. You'll either embarrass her or she'll be eventually be comfortable enough to come out and actually talk to you. Because you're being kind. So give a kind, genuine, excited wave. Hello. Say hello to her every time. See what happens. It's less threatening that it's a woman than it is a man. I just for whatever sexist reason it is. It, it is. If it was a man doing it, I'd feel creeped out. Why is that? Because historically speaking, there's less danger from a predatory woman than a predatory man. Uh, historically speaking, that's true. Or the dangers are more are the dangers from a predatory man are more prevalent, obvious than the dangers from a predatory woman. I suppose that's another way to look at it. It's more immediate. Predatory woman, the what financial danger is kind of the rule of the day, right? That's your big fear of a predatory woman is financial, uh. or scam you or whatever, or the, you know, the, the gold, not even necessarily a gold digger, just a scammer. That's if you look in the prisons, that's where most they're in there for kind of financial crimes, theft, scam, frauds, credit card frauds. That's why women are in jail. So, you know, the, the fears are different. And so, are, you know, what are you more afraid of? Being physically hurt or having someone defraud you of, of some money? Yeah, you're going to fear the more immediate fear. It's no. just It's just natural. Uh, it's, okay. Yeah, you know. So I, I, it's my guess. You want to put on my sociology hat or whatever it is and pretend that I know what I'm talking about. You. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, what's next? What was normal in your family that you later found out was something not every family did? Well, when we had car parts in the, on, on the kitchen counter, and, and we also had all three Joy of Sex books in the living room bookshelf. And so, you know, most families weren't as freely open about sexuality as we were, or apparently car parts on the kitchen counter. It, you know, it was just a, wasn't a thing. You know, just how life was. 
<laughs> you know, you go over to your friend's house and, you know, there's no car parts. There's no spare cars in the backyard. You know, you, yeah. And you know, all they have on the shelves is Civil War books. You know, like, okay, not everybody has these kind of things. <laughs> and then you go to some other friend's house and they've got the Bible and, you know, the, the Jesus things and... And you could eat off the floor, you know, these kind of places. And you're going, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of simple. There's nothing. It's America. Yeah. But it also wasn't a thing, you know. It was just, we all we didn't really think about it. Yeah, we all live differently. So what? <laughs> you know, we didn't think about it. At least as kids, we didn't think about it. I didn't. I thought everybody did naked nights on Thursday, you know. That's what I, I thought everybody did. No. Even in my house, they didn't do naked nights on Thursdays. And it was just us. It was my mother and my sister and I. Yeah. Yeah, but your mother was European, so, you know. Yeah, she was from Denmark. She'd get out the the sun lamp and get it set up in the living room when we'd laze about under the sun lamp. Yeah, so, you know, Denmark's weird. You got their weird culture over there. I loved it. Changed my life. I visited there twice as a child. It, I came from a strict Southern Baptist family, and I walked into that open culture. <laughs> I thought I had gone into heaven. <laughs> yeah, your, your Southern Baptist raised family would have thought you'd gone to hell. That's what they would have thought. <laughs> yeah, but, eh, you know, there's nothing wrong with either one, to be honest. If it works for you, it works for you. That's what's important. I, you know, I'm not disparaging anybody. It's just, you know, whatever works for you, whatever gets you through this freaking roller coaster life, gets you through this roller coaster life. I'm, I'm not here to judge. You want to go to do it, to, you know, do it for Denmark, or you want to, you know, do it for God, whatever. <laughs> have your knock yourselves out <laughs> just say well that's to do it for Denmark it's because he had a he had a campaign a couple of years ago in Denmark do it oh for, yes I remember that one that was good yeah their birth rate was too low so they actually had a campaign they had a public service campaign out encouraging people to have, have sex which is kind of strange you got the government running around telling people to go go have some unprotected whoopee Go on, go on, go, go play. Go on. That's Denmark. <laughs> That's Denmark. Go play. God, I love that place. <laughs> it's just, it's just, go play. We need you to go play. Go on. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> I didn't know teenagers needed encouraging. Young people needed encouraging to do that, but apparently they do. Yeah. Maybe it's when you're too open about it, there's... You know, you're so open about it, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. And so, it's like, no, we need it to be a thing. You know, they're going, yeah. 
you know, there is that thing, you know, if you're so open, you get to a point where you're open about it, you've experienced it your whole life, that's just the way it is. Well, then sexuality doesn't have anything, there's, there's no taboo, there's nothing to push you towards it, right? Exactly. Well, except society needs procreation, you, you do need to procreate. I mean, well, we're not going to go extinct as a species, you know, individual culture could. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, hence the do it for Denmark. Hence the do it for Denmark. <laughs> I just public service announcements to go have unprotected sex. That's just hilarious. I. Just, because yeah. <laughs> if you break it down, that's what they're asking you to do. <laughs> they want you to go out and have unprotected sex so they can have little babies. I just I wonder if it worked. I should act, we should actually go look. Anyway, that <laughs> <laughs> gets easy thing to check, right? I suppose. Okay, here's one for you. Yeah. My supervisor cons- confirmed that management is dumping a bunch of workload on me to have me quit. What are ways to deal with that legally and to fuck them over? Well, one, don't try and fuck them over, because that only hurts you. Now, what you can do is, A, don't quit, because he wants you to quit so they don't have to pay you unemployment. So, here's what you do. You start looking for another job, and two, you only do what you can do, and you document everything else. Send yourself emails. Copy all your emails, send them to you privately, so you got it all as documented as much as you can for when they try to... Because when they fire, because when they will eventually fire you, because they're putting more work on than you can possibly do. But if they want you to quit, the thing is to not quit, because they're trying to save themselves money with unemployment. They want to get rid of you. Probably just want to re- remove your position, which would actually be an unemployment claim and so they're going to make you frustrated until you quit well once you know their game plan then don't do it but create your exit plan now if once you get another job screw the two week notice just leave say I'm out of here see you later bye give me my last last check because a two week notice is a courtesy it's not a requirement And if they're willing to screw you over, I mean, if they're willing to do this kind of behavior, then you leaving once you have something else secured is you're morally on solid ground. You're treating them the same way they're treating you. But, or you're actually still treating them better because you're still doing your job as well as you can up until the point where you're not. But don't kill yourself. Don't stress yourself. It's not worth it. Do what you can do. Pick and choose. <laughs> That's a nice thing. You can pick and choose. What's your most important thing? You yeah. know. Don't try to be a martyr. It's not going to work. Just cover your butt. Look for your exit. Now's a good time to be exiting. So, go find an exit. Now, there's a bigger question. Why are they trying to get rid of you? Are you too expensive for the role? They just want to get rid of your position. 
or are you some kind of cultural problem? Because you'll, if you're a cultural problem or something, you may run into this later on. Now they could just be a dickwad company. You know, there's some signs that that's true. <laughs> you know, you may not want to work there anyway. So, you know, just prepare yourself to move on and cover your butt. All right. I found out by accident that my boss is seeking to replace me. Am I doing the right thing by resigning ASAP? Well, there is the thing if that... It's the same advice I actually just gave the other person. Look for your exit strategy. But there's people who have been trying to get replaced for years and never get replaced because they're actually not easy to replace. So you have to be very careful. Just because they're looking to replace you doesn't mean they're going to be able to. But don't assume that they can't. Everybody's technically replaceable. But the fact that if they want to replace you and haven't yet, it means you have some skills or some knowledge that they need. So, you know, you've got that. But what you've got is knowledge that, you know, this company doesn't see you as a long-term solution or a long-term commitment. So you know that don't have a long-term commitment. Now, whether you should leave as soon as possible or not, you should be looking for your own exit strategy. That is true. Whether that's as soon as possible, eh, don't panic. It would be my suggestion. Calm and collected. We know it's hard. Trust me. I know it's hard because I don't do it very well. I can give you great advice about staying calm and collected. I don't do it very well. But that's the thing. It's just plan. And don't feel any... Oh, ooh, excuse me. Any obligation. Hiccups. Don't feel any more obligation to a company or to their clients than they have towards you. Behave ethically and morally. Don't get me wrong. You know, you don't want to... The high road is a wonderful place to be. Just maintain that, and you'll be fine. Now's a good time to be looking for other work, so. Okay. My, I have quit my last job due to a toxic environment. On Monday, I have a job interview. What reason should I tell them when they ask me why I quit my previous job? Cultural didn't, culture didn't fit. But yeah, it wasn't a good fit. Yeah, it just wasn't a good fit. The culture wasn't a good fit. That's all you have to say. Because you don't want to down talk the. You don't want to, you know, talk bad about the other company. You don't want to do that. So the way to do that and say we just didn't fit, we didn't match. You don't have to say it was a toxic work environment because then they're going to be worried about you know whether you're a, you know, someone who kind of looks for that kind of thing. And in today's world, you don't want to be viewed as that. So it's just it wasn't a cultural fit. We weren't. It wasn't going to be a long-term solution for either one of us, and so I felt it was best to move on. And again, I'm going to go give a plug to a YouTube channel that I have no contact with, but Life After Layoff. Go go check out that YouTube channel. 
and they get some good advice about, you know, he's a recruiter, ex-recruiter, a corporate recruiter. So he gives good advice about dealing with these kind of things. So go check out channels like that. Okay. What's that? I'm 14 and I went to live with my dad, but my mom won't let me. They never went to court for a custody arrangement. What can I do? Well, they never went to court for a custody arrangement, which they have some kind of agreement. Um, did, have you actually talked to your dad or just your mom? Um, these kind of things is going to be a difficult path to navigate, and you actually have to understand why you actually want to, to change. Are you just unhappy with your mother's rules, or do you want to spend some time living with your father to get to know him? And is your father in a position to be able to do that? You know, maybe he's not in a financial position. Maybe he's only in a studio apartment or something. You know, I don't know. But these are these are not conversations that are solved in one conversation. These are ongoing conversations that you have that are going to be very emotional, that have a lot of emotion tied behind them that you're not as a child aren't going to understand that aren't your fault, but you end up paying the price for it. And, you know, sadly, you're going to have to be a little older than you are to get through this one. And without knowing your parents, without knowing how reasonable they are or not, or what, what issues are at play, you know, it's hard to know how it's going to play out. But these are one of these things where talking to grandparents can help just so you can, maybe you can help understand why there's a reluctance from one side or the other, you know, without hurting feelings of the parents. You know, you kind of have an instinct of who you can talk to who will give you real answers and who is going to, you know, have a overly emotional answer one way or the other. You know, who's going to, you know, you know who you can do. Trust your instincts on that one. You know, at 14, you're starting to have those. You can have them. But my biggest suggestion is truly understand why you want to move. Why you want to live with the other. Because you're going to have to explain it. And if you can give a good enough explanation of why, they will, good parents will eventually come around. It might take them some time. But they'll come around. Because... They love you and they care about you and they want to do what's best for you. And if you can explain why, and it's not some short-term emotional thing, it's a, a long-term emotional thing, you're better off. Yeah. Okay. Why don't depressed people just do something and just try and change? Like they haven't. <laughs> right. This is... But we, I don't want to be flippant because for people who don't experience depression, who have no clue... They have no clue. And so this is actually a legitimate question. Because they can't understand. And so they go, how come? I don't understand. What they're telling you is, I don't understand. And so, you're right. You don't understand because you can't. Yeah. It's not, their brains, their body chemistry doesn't work the same way as yours does. They experience the world differently than you do. You know, one way isn't inherently better or worse. It's just 
you know, different. And, you know, part of the problem with depression is we don't understand those differences when we first get through them, have to go through it. And so we have to learn this whole big learning curve. And then some of us get treated for depression, then it's not actually depression. The depression is based upon the mistreatment of, like, me with an anxiety disorder. Or someone might have Mine a... was bipolar. You yeah. get treated for depression instead of bipolar. I did for years. Yeah. And it doesn't work because you're not treating the right freaking thing. But it's hard to know. There's so much that's, you know, gray area in there. And that's the problem because it's all different. So just accept that you can't understand. If you can't understand it, just accept that you can't. I accept that I can't understand your anxiety disorder. Yeah, I can't understand bipolar disorder. I just accept that what you tell me is true. Exactly. I listen to, <laughs> I listen to you. You do a good job at describing and I listen to you, and I try and put myself in your shoes, but that's the best I can do. I can't walk your walk. No, it's not possible. Right. And you, you can't, and if you really have no clue, I don't want to say be thankful you have no clue, but be well, thankful you have no clue. <laughs> well, there's something here for everybody, my mother said. Yeah, I mean... You know, and also be wary because there might come a day where you've stressed at work, your pet dies, your car breaks down, and you end up in a depressive episode. And someday you might understand. You know, depression can hit anybody at any time. Depression does not discriminate. Doesn't care how rich you are. Doesn't care how poor you are. Doesn't care how educated you are or not. Doesn't care about your skin color, your cultural background. Doesn't care. It's a natural phenomenon. It's been with human beings for as far as we can figure out. As far as recorded human history. So it's a thing. It's real. And... You know, accept that it's real. And if you love those who are going through it, it helps them. That's it, guys. So, yeah, that's my suggestion. Okay, I've been waiting for this last one. Uh huh. My fiance told me that my six year old daughter won't be allowed to attend our wedding. My daughter is everything to me. She will not be allowed on my special day. How should I respond? <laughs> I'll tell you what I would, how I would respond. I idea, well, if she ain't there, then I ain't going to be there. Well, actually, my response was, well, it's a good thing to know that you, you've, this is a controller and control freak, and you can get out of the relationship now. Yes. Because it's not that you're... You're going to be raising a child with this person. Well, you've got to understand. It's not that, the, you know, we're talking about our things and he doesn't want children there and I want children there and we're having this discussion and we come and kind of put loggerheads and so what do we do? That wasn't, the, that wasn't the question. Read the question again. Okay, wait a minute. 
fiance. So it's my this, fiance this told is, me this is a guy. This is a guy with a daughter. Fiance is with two E's as a woman. So the woman is the one saying she doesn't want the child at the wedding. Yeah, it, I don't. The, the sex of the couples is not relevant. You're sitting here at loggerheads. If the question was, we're at loggerheads over the issue whether children should be at our wedding, whether we want children or not, and you know, you know, my the other my fiance doesn't want children. I want children. Right? There's an argument to not wanting children at a wedding. There's actually a legitimate argument there. I can understand that. But read the question. My fiance told me. Not my fiance asked. Not my fiance wants. Not my my fiance told me. That's the that's the warning word. There wasn't a discussion. There wasn't a word arguing over this. I was told that this is going to happen on a wedding day, where it's you're supposed to compromise. This is how you how you deal with your wedding. Is how you're going to deal with the rest of your life. So this person, I don't care if it's a man or a woman, told you that your daughter can't come to the wedding. Not asked. Not wants. Not would prefer. <laughs> All these things that a normal, healthy relationship would you would address this kind of an issue. The fact that I can't even comprehend. I can comprehend. I don't want children at the wedding. It's you know I, I, did, I you know I don't want to deal with the distraction. I don't want you know you want the perfect thing. I can get that, but that's not what's happening here. I told you it's not going to happen. They told me this wasn't going to happen. It wasn't a discussion. It wasn't a desire. It wasn't a wish. It was a command. That's not how healthy relationships work. Ours does. I tell you every day you have to put in a triplicate what you're going to do. I've yet to receive a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to approve of your activities. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> now, there is a quick story that I wanted to talk about that kind of wraps up the whole love thing. There was a uh, a wife from, I believe it was Ukraine. Yes. There's a military man from Ukraine. He, he's a service member, served in Afghanistan. Him and his brother had actually served in Afghanistan. And his, his wife's first trip to the United States, and they're out and about doing, you know, the things that people do. Having a drink at a bar, and someone buys them a you know, someone pays for their drink. They have dinner, and someone overhears that they're talking about their time in, in Afghanistan, and someone pays for their dinner. And and his wife is, this is such a wonderful country. People do this all the time. He says, yeah, it's because, you know, we love each other. As much as we look out about the, the world today... Not our communities, our culture today. And we appears that we're at each other's throat. It appears that we hate each other. It appears that we all, you know, don't like each other very much. But the reality is, when you 
dig down beneath all that superficial BS, when you sweep that all away, there is a love for our fellow human beings here in the United States that's different than other places. And every time people come to this country, that's what they notice. They see it. Other people see it. People from other countries, people from other cultures, they see it. There is an underlying kindness to the United States. It can sometimes be covered up by this ugly thing we call politics or even culture sometimes. But you get down to the just the human connection, it's still there. And it's our job here as hosts and you as listeners to spread it more. To let that love shine through. So let the love of your family the love of your children, the love of your spouse, the love of pizza, the love of baseball, the love of football, whatever it is you love, the love of reading. I don't care what it is you do love. Express it. Take the time to express your love. And for me, I love you. Good night. and Love everybody. Good night.